Prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Quick uh, word out to our sponsors, who is uh, sponsoring our program this month. We're going to say thanks to Patriot Coolers, Patriot Coolers and PatriotCoolers.com. If you'll visit their page, you can get 10% off when you do the promo code KYLE. That's spelled K-Y-L-E. Keeping it real simple. If you need a tumbler, if you need a mug, I'm not asking you to go buy something you don't need, but if you do, check them out. They keep things hot. They think keep things cold. Uh, you can check out their great products. They've got great colors, patriotic packaging, and a seriously fair price. They are more affordable than some of the bigger names, but they're probably made in the same factory. In fact, they told me sometimes they get the wrong product sent over. So go figure out how that goes. I've got my uh, my hot tumbler, tumbler right here right now. Uh, you don't have to pay for a name brand that's not going to add anything to your life. Get something that supports disabled vets and the Kyle Serafin Show. I've been using them since 2017. We started using these on surveillance, and my wife's been using it for quite a while in the minivan. Uh, check out their rotomotive coolers. They're soft-sided coolers. They can keep ice cold for days, just like a Yeti, just like an Arctic, except it says Patriot on the side, just like you. Support your country, support our vets, support the show. It's promo code KYLE for 10% off. All right, and we are back. We're going to get into this interview because now I'm very, uh, my appetite is whetted to find out what happens when you piss off the guys that are going to talk to you about a recording. And it sounds like uh, you agreed not to be recording. Did they make any assurances that they give you a copy of what they were going to record at all? Because they did have that ability. Yeah, well, what they told me, and this is exactly what they said, is that I would not be able to have access to that recording, either video or audio, unless I was charged, and then it would be made available to me through discovery. But other than that, I would never see it. And then on top of that, they also mentioned, though, that this was part of your proffer, that you couldn't be charged for anything you said during that anyhow. That's correct. Yeah, it's really frustrating. Nothing that I said could be used against me unless I lied. Right. Yeah, okay. So it's funny because uh, I guess it's quirky more than funny. It's not really funny or amusing. It's but I've been in that situation and I'm I don't understand why you wouldn't give somebody a copy of an interview. It doesn't bother me at all. I would make yeah. when I sat down for proffer sessions with uh, people. They come out of prison and sit with their attorneys, and I'd say, "Look, you know, I will send you a, a CD, a copy of this recording." literally as soon as I get back and I download it because I don't care. <laughs> it's, it's like the words were there. You were there. Yeah. I was there. The attorney's there. We all know what was said. So, well, I think that they realized, uh, uh, well, as you can imagine before this interview, both of them had a stack in front of them of everything that I had probably, you know, written uh, but certainly everything I've written about January 6th up to that point, because right. I'd had I'd had eight months now worth of work on that story at this point, And they were uh, obviously going much as, as they do, as, as you are well aware, they went further, much further back into my history. And so they had printed up uh, all pertinent, uh, maybe in anything I'd maybe said that was inflammatory of, of any kind or anti-government rhetoric. And of course, if you're a libertarian, you're going to spout something anti-government every other sentence. So that's just part of what we do. Yeah. As is um, your First Amendment right, I might add. That's correct. And it's not because we intend on overthrowing the government. It's just we intend on holding them accountable. That is is as is our right, as you say, as you stated. Yeah. So this this is the the situation that I was up against there. And and I, I can assure you of this. And I, you know, I, I would I would just as uh, uh, readily accept your your input on this as well. But I expected a good cop, bad cop type of interview. And that was not at all what happened. 
It's just actually one of the guys was a good guy and the other guy was an asshole. <laughs> that's that's and, probably the most realistic possibility that you would have ever gotten is that it wasn't intentional. You could have gotten two really nice people, by the way. That would have been just as yeah. likely. But 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 I I I am as I said I've I've gotten a, a bit of my dad's profiler's gift, but more more than that, I have actually studied the whole body language thing and and done training in that area. And one of the guys, Agent uh, Doss, was he just he just was like he thought this was stupid. I could see it in his body language. This was you know yeah I got to do this, but I don't want to be doing this. Right. Whereas uh, Agent Noyes was he was into it. He was serious about it. Could you tell um, the amount of time that they had in the bureau, or age, general age, if one was younger than the other? Uh, they were they were about the same age. Uh, I would say. 40-ish, give or take a year or two. Okay. Either side. It's interesting. A lot of the guys that I saw that were getting closer to retirement, um, and and I was not close to retirement, but I felt the same way, you know, looked down the barrel of these investigations and felt them to be ridiculous. And mostly because most of the charges were trespassing charges and yeah. parading and all this kind of nonsense. And uh, that's not what the FBI does. It's just not what they do. So yeah. that's a really weird thing to spend your time doing. Um, all right. So one guy is not into it. One guy is dialed in. You are obviously uh, someone who needs to be interrogated, not interviewed. And uh, so what? Are the, how do they lead off with the questions? Well, after we got past the antagonism of the uh, my desire to, to record the, the session, <clears throat> it it went, as you might imagine, you know, start your day. Why were you there? That, you know, the t typical questions like that. Mm -hmm. And and then, of course, uh, jumping ahead the the primary theme or the primary thing that agent noise was trying to get me to cop to was that i knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that i was in a restricted area which i refused to yield to because by the time i arrived at the capitol there were no bar more barricades there were no police lines there were nothing until you got to that west terrace battle line there was not a single indication of any type at all that you were in a restricted area. Mm -hmm. I arrived at, as I said before, well, my, I turned my camera on, on the West Terrace battle line at exactly one nineteen. The first thing that I captured were, um, uh, protesters and police receiving first aid. That was the first thing that I captured. So the battle had already been enjoined at that point. And, and as we know now, uh, the battle began at, at, uh, 1252 when that first barricade was pushed over, uh, officer Carolyn Edwards was shoved over, hit her head on the back you know, concrete step. Um, the protesters drew first blood. Sorry to all my friends and followers out there that think that the cops did, but nope, that's not what happened. Uh, protesters drew first blood. And then as we all we know uh, absolutely and conclusively now, even on the very first police line that they formed at that semi-permanent black fence that was there and set up for the inauguration, protesters again initiated the violence there. And it was only after that that then the cops began to respond with the rubber bullets and, and other types of less than lethal muni uh, munitions. Mm -hmm. And so what ended up happening was... They were trying to press me 
to get me to acknowledge that I knew that I was in a restricted space and I would not yield. And then when it came to the point where, okay, you're now filming the battle line, you now know that this is a, a restricted area that you eventually went through. I said, yes. Oh, I said fully. And which is why I never pressed the line. I mean, the only thing I ever pressed was play a record on my, on my camera. You know, I never, I never did press the line. I never pressed against any law enforcement officer. I never made any violent moves or aggressive moves against anybody the entire time. And I said to them, I said, and you, You've got me, I know, on a thousand other people's cameras. So the questions you're asking me right now, you already know the answers to. And at that point, one of them even said to me, yes, and thank you for not doing any violence against law enforcement that day. That's on the record, mm -hmm. assuming that doesn't get deleted off the video if I ever need it. So they actually thanked me for not doing violence. And. And so. Yeah, but that, you know said, what, that's, a, that's a really weird thing to assume that there was the possibility that you would. Well, they, they, they certainly, well, okay. You and I both know how many of these defendants have been overcharged. They've been charged with violence or at least aiding and abetting in violence when they were a hundred feet away. Mm -hmm. I interviewed a guy this morning. That's exactly what happened to him. 10 felony charges. And he, he's the only case I know of, which won a three to zero appeal from the DC appellate court who bitch slapped his judge and made them let him out of jail after five and a half months, sent him home. And then his final sentencing or his final, um, uh, um, uh, what, what do you call it when they redo the charges? Um, ah, superseding charges. Yeah. Superseding indictment. 10 felonies down to two misdemeanors, which is probably, I mean, this was, been. What's that? That's where it should have been if it if it was. I mean, here's the thing: you drop it down to that, you might as well drop the damn thing in federal. We just don't yeah. do that. That's just not the way yeah. feds. I mean, deal the, with the guy was the guy was innocent because he was never more than a hundred feet away from what he was being charged with. And and there's impossible. It's impossible that the agents that that brought this to uh, the whatever U.S. attorney they brought it to didn't know that. Sure. And so, what it, what was happening with me during this interview is I was there specifically under the impression that they already knew everything that they needed to know anyway, that at the most videoed event in the history of the world, that they already knew everything they needed to know about me. They had done my, the research on my background. I had 25 years worth of uh, writings that they could extract and learn everything about my mindset and who I am. And, and they've already waived the ability to charge you with anything you say. So it shouldn't even have yep. mattered what you said at that point. Yeah. Are you, are you familiar but, with the concept of uh, parallel construction? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was that something so, that you were aware of at the time that, that they could I, no, do that? No, it never crossed my mind, but, but I, <laughs> not, not once, but what, but when they finally got to the point of me entering the Capitol mm -hmm. and they said, okay, well, obviously you knew you were entering a restricted space at that point because you saw the battle line, you saw them defending the building and now you've gone in, you were violating the law at that point and you knew you were. And I went, no, I wouldn't. I go, why? I said, I saw the stand down order. And they like, they looked at each other. What are you talking about? I said, there was a, an obvious stand down order. And, and, uh, <laughs> what makes you think that? I said, well, the fact that I saw it with my own eyes, number one, I said, this hundred or so officers that were on this line, and this is exactly what I said, they didn't want to be there. They were getting shit kicked out of them. Yeah. I watched it. I watched blood spill. I watched violent perpetrators uh, attack these guys. 
And, and they were, ha- they were, they had to stand on that line for a solid hour and take this abuse. And I told them, I said, I actually said this. I said, I saw what I considered to be lethal force used against some of these officers. The fact they didn't pull their guns and unload is amazing to me. Yep. And they said, what? And it's exactly what the, 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 the more antagonistic of the two uh, agents said. He, Noyes, he said, what, were they supposed to just shoot them? And I said, yeah, they were throwing spears at him. One guy got hit in the face and blood gushing out of his face. So they, you know, I said, yeah, I would have. You know, well, moreover, that that actually fits the definition for federal law enforcement's deadly force policy, which is imminent danger of death or serious physical injury. I'd say throwing spears or a, a large rock or any of these things have the potential of, you know, when you see the Antifa types that are throwing fireworks that explode and you could do real damage, yeah. you know, people have been eviscerated by those things. If they hold on to them, they lose hands and things. So those are all, you know, those are all deadly force things and as you say a lot of restraint on behalf of the capitol police on there who probably Incredible don't have restraint. the they probably don't have the training for that no. kind of a riot um i'm just well, going well, you know what you I know that i've developed quite a few capitol police officers uh whistleblowers myself okay and and that i'm in current contact uh contact with some that have come out some that have not and almost in every case i discuss um use of force training that they've had and that we can get into that more later because uh, there is quite a bit of difference between that yeah, i think that i think that's really interesting only only yeah. because most people have no idea what the standard is no they have no idea what the training is and that's very very relevant to that's why i mean that's why dc metro does riots and why federal troops do not federal officers federal agents do not do riots it's not what we mm. do well, we've yeah. never done that. <laughs> and, I, and I've been a part of a lot of these things. I used to go to the State of the Union every year. I've been to, you know, the, the big Fourth of July parades, and the big rallies. Like there's a there's actually a protocol to handle this kind of stuff, it turns out. And um, so I'll be very interested to hear what what your sources you've cultivated inside there have said. But you marched in. You saw a stand down order. Did you tell us what the stand down order looked like from your end and why you interpreted it that way? It was because it, it wasn't an obvious breach. It was there was a moment in time where suddenly at a section and it wasn't it wasn't on the the main you know that uh semi-circle west terrace battle line that was held for about an hour and a half or more actually more than an hour and a half and and it was it was the breach was not there or the stand down wasn't there immediately although i <laughs> well you're gonna love this is that uh during the oath keepers trial i signed the court protective order allowing me to listen to the Capitol police radio transmissions. Okay. I've listened to all the channels. I've read the transcripts. I've had access, you know, that, that mythical 41,000 hours worth of videotape. I've not seen it all because nobody, no one human can, but I've seen a lot of it. I can't report on it. can't talk about it. Uh, except for that, those portions that have been released in trial, uh, and as evidence. But the point being is, is that sure enough, there was a stand down order. There, there, and there, it happened at the moment that I saw it with my own eyes. And I didn't learn that, that that was true until over a year after my, my FBI interview. And I, and I was validated in what I saw with my own eyes, but that's, can but, you say but, where that came from, that, whether that came from the radio, you heard it over the radio. Is that what you're yes. yep. okay. heard it from the United States Capitol police radio transmissions. Okay. What, yeah. did, what, what kind of wording was it out of curiosity? If you're able to kind of roughly approximate yeah, well, the, 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 um, uh, the, Capitol Police Officer Lieutenant Tarek Johnson, familiar who with was Tarek. famously one where the wore the red MAGA hat. Yep. Well, he's known for that 
infamous for that, disciplined by his own department for that, suspended for that. Yeah. There's your suspendable right there. He is. And, uh, I'm, and, I've, and I've been in contact with him. We're going to have him on at some point too. So fantastic. Just working out the time. He seems so, like a really nice guy. Yeah. So he was, he was the first guy that I worked closely with, uh, and, and throughout this entire process. Well, so that part is what he's known for, but more importantly, he was the hero of the day, which is why he was disciplined. He wasn't disciplined for the red MAGA hat. He was disciplined because he took initiative and did things actually saying over the radio, I'll take the 550 and the 534, which were the disciplinary codes for the Capitol police department as he began the process of initiating the evacuation of the Senate chambers, because as he had spent several minutes asking for permission from uh, Assistant Chief Yogananda Pittman up in the command center and total silence, total stonewalling, even with the operator, the dispatcher, repeating his request for uh, permission, repeating his request for direction, for orders. And he just says, screw it, I'll do it myself. And he's a lieutenant, so, so he's not he's like a, he's he's not like a guy who's on the street. He's not a private there or some low level no, dude. I mean, he's no, one of the senior no. guys on the yeah. chain of command there for that moment. Yeah, he was a command level uh, officer for in sure. charge that day of the interior security of the building. So he said, and I'm just so, going to paraphrase that again, but he said, I'll take the disciplinary forms that are going to come up because obviously there's going to be some for him usurping command. And I'm yeah. taking the call and I'm making the call that we have to stand down out of probably, I would say, uh, officer safety considerations based on yes, what you were saying 100%. too. Uh, and I'm looking forward to asking him about that as well. But he said those things, took took it on his own, and then did the right thing and stepped people back so that you could avoid having people hit in the face with a spear and not be able to shoot them. So he had he he issued, a, 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 it was a, a, a sequence of commands over Capitol Police Radio. Uh, the first thing he did is he had the M4 officers withdraw and come inside the building. Okay. He wanted every officer that was carrying an automatic rifle to get inside the building because he had determined that they could not risk those weapons falling into the hands of the protesters. So everybody inside. So right. he ordered, that was his first pullback order was he ordered M4s in. And then eventually there was an order for the entire uh, force to come. And they did. They actually, it was just before two o'clock, they ordered the entire USCP force to come into the building. They were going to leave Metro outside and they were going to come in to defend the Capitol because they felt like at that moment that the breach was imminent. Mm -hmm. And so he ordered them in. Now, ironically, most of them didn't respond. They couldn't hear the radios. Sure. The, the crowd noise outside was, you know, deafening the singing, the chanting and all of that. They, they uh, other officers that I've interviewed, uh, even CDU units, the hard units that were on the front line yep. from the Capitol police that, that are still, um, uh, with the, the force today. So they're anonymous sources. But the point being is, is they, they told me flat out, no, we could, we couldn't hear our radios at all. So the, when we got the withdrawal orders at the times that came in and there was multiple succession of them, we never heard them. That's why they stayed out on the line the entire time. And so what uh, what ended up happening, though, is that there was an obvious pullback up top. So the guys that were away from the away from the crowd noise that were up top defending the top uh, underneath the uh, um, uh, all the scaffolding, you know, where they had the, 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 the tarps around the scaffolding that was being pulled off and there was a battle going on. That's where it, that's where it looked like, you know, some medieval warfare type you know, shit. Yeah, like, like people but, trying to get but, over a wall. Right, right, right. And and uh, 
what ended up happening is those guys up there heard the stand down order. They weren't where all the noise was. Right. And that's exactly what they did. It wasn't a true stand down. It was a pullback order is what it was. And so all of a sudden in this moment in time, there just was this free flow of humanity up those steps towards the Northwest uh, Senate side door that was ultimately breached up there. And when I got to the top and I started wheeling my camera around up there, you see dozens of police officers just standing around. Some of them are on their phone. I assumed that they were texting their wife saying I'm okay. And in fact, a lot of that was happening. Sure. Uh, understandably so because their, their families were seeing it on television back home and they were just standing in groups, chatting, talking on their phones, that sort of thing. As people were just now saying, I never saw the breach of that Northwest door. That was well ahead of before I got up there. Hundreds of people had moved up there before I ever made it into that, you know, that pack of humanity that was going up. And so now we're back to the FBI interview. And so that's why I never yielded that. Well, then they said, well, then you entered a door. You obviously knew that was a restricted space. I said, I said, guys, I've got it on my camera. <laughs> Cops are standing around issuing no orders. They're not, there's, there's nobody saying to this crowd, you can't go in there. Uh, in any manner whatsoever. Right. So they're standing around on their phones and chatting in groups. That's what do you know about the, their, yeah. What do you know about the doors being opened or whether they were already, how did those things open up? Cause we know they had mad glocks. That's been a big thing of contention, I believe. Yeah. That, that, that door was allegedly the first door that was breached. Uh, and, and I have other information directly from the USCP that in fact, there was another breach before the, before the one that the world knows about. Okay. The, the one, the official breach that happened at, uh, uh, two thirteen, when the first guy came through the window. So when that first couple guys came through the window, one of them went over to the door. He hit the door. That then trigger. It's it's got a mag lock on it, but it triggers a fifteen second delay. It sets off an alarm like a fire alarm, and then fifteen seconds later, after depression, it then releases. By and and that's true of all the interior doors. Just for cabin. crowd control or for uh, for you know fire code, I'm sure for, like for emergent. It's it's actually in the DC fire code. Okay, that's, that's the way the doors there that, work. That checks out. I mean, you, I've seen the videos of it, and it's like, yeah, that's probably makes sense to me that they would have to be able to open from the insides. I've never heard of anything. Yeah, there's no locking there's no conspiracy there. Yeah. yeah. No, but nobody was secretly ordering the magnetic locks to be unleashed. Sure. That, I mean, that makes far more sense, and it makes. You know, I always tell people that the you know the truth is almost always something uh, much more foolish and silly, and and probably some yeah. government process that got put in there, which is that you can't have interior doors locked, you can't lock people in the building, you have to let them out. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. So we, we 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 it, you know there's famous uh, CCTV uh, of that breach that happens that we've we've seen it from the inside, we've seen it from uh, uh, some of the independent journalists that were there on the outside yeah. capturing that is that event, and of course that's where the QAnon shaman came through. He was one of the first. God, probably first 20 people that came through the door. So he was close. Yep. He didn't participate, but he was dang close to what was happening right there. He certainly he certainly witnessed the violent breaching of that window and doorway, but he uh, uh, did not participate himself. And as I said, I was several hundred people behind that uh, that. But I, but it was that door that I eventually walked through, and and then of course the rest of the rest of the FBI inter interview proceeded as you as you might imagine it it would, and we it it was as I said it, they weren't playing bad cop you know good cop kind of 
uh, games on me. Just one guy was much more serious. One guy was obviously didn't want to be there. And, and on occasion, the other, the, the, the serious guy would get a little irritated with me as I would press and I would ask them questions as well. And then what ended up happening at one point, uh, I said, I said, look guys, I said, do you just want me to tell you what I thought about what happened that day? And the, and the, the irritated guy, agent noise, he just goes, he throws his hands up. Yeah, go ahead. He says, you're going to talk anyway. <laughs> it's, so, and I said, it's so weird that people have emotions about these kind of things. And I've, and I've done a fair number of interviews. I, I can never remember like caring one way or another. Uh, like I want to talk to the person. I'm a human being. But the fact yeah. that he's emotionally invested in this is really strange to me. I think that's actually one of the more important details of what you're sharing. It's probably not what you think is the most important. But to me, that's so strange. Maybe. It's it's so strange that somebody like, what is his interest in it other than what you say? Like you just say what you say. That's all you do. Who cares? So, oh, yeah, anyways, no, so, it, it, there was no uh, stereotypical G-man behavior out of him whatsoever. Okay, you know? so this guy emotionally agrees for you to say whatever you're going to say because you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, that's so what, exactly what he said. So what'd you he give told, him? Go ahead. I, I So I, I, I told him my whole theory because now I've, I've had eight months to develop a theory. Or, or Well, it's in October, so I've had nine, ten months now to develop my theory about what happened today. So I threw the whole thing out at him. I said, I said the entire operation was a rope-a-dope. I'm, I'm not saying that it was planned by any one group, agency, person, uh, whatsoever. I said, but whoever was up in the command center that day, whoever had eyeballs on the entire thing because there was, you know, 1200 cameras there and the command center has access to all of those. They knew what was going on. I had not even heard the, the radio transmissions at this point. I didn't, I didn't get access those to those a year later. And I, but I, I know what I knew at the time and I know what I had seen. And I said, somebody allowed it to take place. And as I said, I said, it was a rope. -a they, it was like, let them in here. Okay. Oh, Oh, good. They don't have any guns. Let them in here. Let them into the next level. Let them battle there for an hour. Okay, they don't have guns. Let them in the door. And then the narrative was captured, and it was won. And it was the biggest political narrative victory, I think, in our nation's history. I've I, you know, I'm I'm a history buff, but I've gone back through my memories and my my the reading that I've done, the study that I've done, certainly the largest political narrative victory in my lifetime, uh, at least in the last hundred years, I can't think of one that was more solidly won that day. And it was, whether it was planned or allowed, it was a resounding victory for that person, Nancy Pelosi, who said in the one year anniversary of the event, at the commemorative events that she planned on the first anniversary, she said that the intention of these commemorative events were to establish and preserve the narrative of January 6th, quote, unquote, dead on Google it. Yeah, that's really gross. Say, I wanted you to say it one more time, the, your working theory, because I don't know that I've ever, heard, have you heard anyone else articulate it that way? No. Because mm -mm. I haven't either. And I'm, I'm not someone who was there, I was in DC area at the time. I was assigned to Washington field at the time. Um, but I got no, I got no dog in the, in the race on this one. And I think it's a, it's a very interesting way of explaining it. You think that they essentially 
vetted the crowd at each of the stages, let them tire themselves out. Rope-a-dope is a boxing term for people that, that are not my, I don't know what my listener audiences look like. If you've never seen boxing, you let somebody tire themselves out by throwing punches and you think they let them tire themselves out in tears, in tiered stages as they let them slowly in, as they were able to pull the protectees out, right? Because the yep. we know the Senate was evacuated. We know the, the Congress That's was right. evacuated. So they were all out. It's just a building at this point. Mm-hmm. And you think they tired themselves out at each tier and vetted the basically the level of violence that the crowd would engage in until they eventually and, and pulled back to just more and more right. and eventually let them through the building. I absolutely I am convinced that once that it was determined by the eyes in the sky that this crowd was not going to brandish firearms in their efforts that and, and that's why I've said from day one, I said it on the first night, I said uh sticks flagpoles and bear spray does not an insurrection make. I agree with you. And this was something else. And again, whether it was, whether there were crowd control, professional provocateurs who manipulated movements that day or not, it was allowed to transpire. It was allowed to develop. It was allowed to take place. And then once they realized that everybody was going to be okay, which is the, you know, that that we're going to let them in. Although, I did write in my second story uh, that came out February 24th that I deemed the Capitol Police to be sacrificial pawns that day, that they were the front line. And if anybody was going to take that first volley of shots, had those, you know, Bubba's from the South, those MAGA guys come in with their concealed weapons, that the Capitol Police were there to take the first shots. And the officer said, are you saying that they were willing to sacrifice, or the FBI, you're telling me that they set this, those those guys up to be shot? I said, yes, absolutely. What do you think, um, did Lieutenant Johnson have similar, did he help you kind of craft any of that thoughts or the way that his experience kind of played out? Did that change or my, 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 I didn't meet, uh, uh, officer Johnson until over a year after my FBI interview, but okay. he validated my theories. In fact, the very first personal meeting I had with him sitting at the table with him, I said these words, I said, said to him, I said, my second article, his name's Tarek yep. goes by TK. I said, TK, my second article, I actually said that you guys, from what I saw, were sacrificial pawns that day. And he leaned over and put his hand in my face and he said, that's exactly right. They didn't give a shit what happened to us that day. Right. Quote, unquote. Are you familiar with the concept of a, a national special security event? Have you ever heard of those in your kind of? No, analysis? not not specific. Maybe I know the concept and don't know it by title. So they do this every year for the State of the Union. They do this every year for the big stuff. Um, they've done it for some protests. There's actually a, a step down version of it that's a little bit more imminent where an event looks like it's going to go big. But it's a uh, it's a national coordination that happens from DHS, from Secret Service is actually the primary agency because you chain of command, you got to name somebody. So they name Secret Service, has responsibility, mm-hmm. and they coordinate FBI officer, um, FBI agents and um, security assets, which are going to be in the building. They coordinate Park Police, as you accurately mentioned earlier, would be one of the people you'd see on the mall because they're responsible mm-hmm. for the National Mall. You'd see the helicopter up. You'd see the Department of Energy doing sweeps for dirty bombs. And you'd see Capitol Police defending the Capitol, you know, setting up for physical security. And you'd see DC Metro handling riot and crowd control and and routes, really, ingress and egress, shutting off streets as needed. And everybody kind of goes through a central command center. Every individual agency gets their own command center. But the Secret Service holds a joint command center where all the leaders from all those different entities mentioned and more are all together. And they quarterback how to make sure that things get done so people can have 
their First Amendment protected activities, whatever they are, without violence, without danger, without terrorist activities and so on. And uh, and the FBI's job is usually in a, a low visibility or undercover type role, walking around and kind of confronting people that are pushing the envelope to keep things uh, under control. We do it every year for uh, for all the inaugurations, like I said, State of the Unions and some other big events as well. And for whatever reason, the January 6, 2021 was not an NSSE, nor was it one of the other sort of step down tiers, which are just other special security events where this kind of coordination would happen. Uh, and when I talked to TK for just a brief minute, I, he said, uh, we were on a skeleton crew that day. And, and it sounded like, did you witness, like they had enough officers to even handle the lines they were on, or was this, you, you called them sacrificial lambs. No, that, so that, that doesn't that, sound that like goes, they, that goes they back to my very first story. But cause I, I, as I said, my first story was just what I saw. And one of the things that I did not see that day was adequate, uh, police protection. And it made no sense to me whatsoever. It was one of the most stark things that I remembered. And then of course, as I then went back through so many, many different times over my videos and I'm looking for evidence of of police presence, even all the way back to the Washington Monument and then the, the entire walk back uh, towards the Capitol, it just didn't exist. And that made no sense to me. And then when I get to the Capitol, I actually, this is exactly what I said. I wrote this. I said, I personally estimated less than 200 Capitol. Now, I wasn't adding Metro in, but I, I, I estimated that there were less than 200 available Capitol police officers during the heat of the, you know, the, the, the shit storm that was going on on the West, West side there. Yeah. The frat. And, and, and so, and, but see in that estimate, that's not what I saw. I then just doubled it because I didn't know what was going on on the east side. And I said, okay, you know, that they would probably have equal distribution of forces uh, on, on both sides. So because I saw less than 100 U.S. Capitol Police on that side. And then in my first interview with TK, he told me, he said when he got to work, he felt like that the number that were actually available to him was about 120 officers. Now, yeah. this was on a day in a circumstance when under normal circumstances, either by the, the the description you gave a while ago, that they would have been all hands on deck. Yeah, and that's, and that's how those things work, right? So they cancel leave, right. as you can imagine. Um, they put everybody that's on a specialty team on standby. Um, during the 4th of July parades, you'll find this kind of funny, probably. They actually take the FBI's evidence dive team, and they put them on mm. their boats, and they run them up and down the Potomac, and they look underneath all the bridges, which, you know, there's bridges going into D.C. On, sure. on certain areas. So they run up and down and do that, and you know, the Coast Guard's up there doing their thing. Like, everybody is involved, and if you're not involved, you're in a standby posture to run down actual threats and leads as needed because mm -hmm. just because you have a security, um, you know, uh, posture doesn't mean that you don't have investigations that have to follow on. So the investigators are actually standing by as well. This is standard, and I've seen that from the beginning. I've always thought that was the strangest thing that they didn't do that to us because I would have been assigned to a standby investigative role if that had happened, and it didn't happen. Yeah, well, I've done three uh, parts of my Capitol Police series now. Uh, part one, two, and three are dealing with a lot of what we talk about uh, when when I reference the Capitol Police, and especially a lot of that is based on the corroborative um, interviews I've done from TK, and then the other unnamed sources that I've developed inside the the Capitol Police force. But the most stark an obvious problem of the day, which takes us now. Now we have to shift back more towards the conspiratorial side rather than the this was always going to happen. So we might as well do it. <laughs> we we don't we don't have any choice but to examine the fact 
And this is a fact. Mm -hmm. Not only were they underdeployed that day, purposefully so, by my estimation and by all evidence as it presents itself, but the fact that the Capitol Police themselves had issued eight demonstration protest event permits on the grounds that day, and they were yet not properly prepared, that's first clue. Second clue that there was something else up something else going down was that the officers as who had, they have testified in the various trials have said, we showed up for work that day thinking it was just another day at the office. Yeah. Officers who testified in these major trials have said on the stand, no, we had no, we were not, we are not, we're not briefed at all on protest events on the Capitol lawns, Capitol lawn or grounds. We were not briefed that there was going to be a stage that there was going to be Congress members speaking on the Capitol grounds that afternoon, never briefed in their morning roll call briefings of that. One officer, uh, I remember his name, uh, Brian Sarkey. He was on the east side. He he valiantly, bravely, heroically took and stood at that door and took a beating and just mercilessly sprayed by all types of OC sprays and chemicals for about an hour. And never left his post where other guys were running away. He stood and took the whole onslaught himself. And he testified in the first Oath Keepers trial. And they, under cross-examination, they asked him what he knew of what, what was going on in D.C. that day. He said, the only thing I knew is that something was happening at the White House. Mm-hmm. How's that for that's that Kyle, that's not an intelligence failure. No, I agree with you. When, yeah. And, and, when, and just you the issue fact that, eight permits. Exactly. That's, that's the damning evidence. Permits. Yeah. If, there, if there's damning. eight permits, then you got to staff for eight events that are happening simultaneously and you got to put people out for that. So that's always been one of the things that's been confusing. The more I learned about the fact that that was going on, there's just obvious questions you have when you're involved in that type of work. It's like, okay, well, how many people are you expecting at the event? That's the next question. And then, what does the security posture look like and how far from the building is it going to be or what, you know, that's what physical security does. And Capitol Police is actually pretty good at doing physical security. I don't know yeah. that they're a great investigative force. I have no idea whether they're a good, you know, um, principal protection force. That's not their, yeah. that's not their thing. They, they do physical security for a building and they do it well because that's their and, job. And, you know, uh, and I'm, I'm never, I never say this derogatorily when I say this, but even if it doesn't matter if you're a hard unit guy, if you're an investigative guy, if you're a special agent of the United States Capitol Police, uh, 99% of their career time on duty is as a glorified tour guide. Yeah, or security guard just standing still. I mean, yeah. they're mostly just yeah, it's not it's out. not the most violent place in Washington. Uh, and that's why that's why the posture was totally different from MPD when they showed up. When they showed up, they were ready to bust heads because that's what we do. That is what they do. And they're really good at it, by the way. I mean, I've seen them on yeah. two different inaugurations handle business. Um, they're they're not my favorite police force, not by a long shot. I think that they uh, they hire people with felonies, which is really bizarre to most yeah. people. You know, they they have a serious corruption issue, and they've got a serious force issue. But that's not to say that there are not some really really valiant people that stand on the front lines and take a beating and and deliver a beating and stop people from from infringing on other people's rights which is what they yep. do. They're very good at it. They're very good at crowd control and they're highly effective and they're trained all the time because they get used all the time. They've got a lot of experience in that. So that's that's interesting to me. All right. Um, how many theories do you have on what, what do you think went down? If we're going to get, because we, we'll step into the conspiracy a little bit. We could just say this is speculative from here on out. And I think that's fair. It is speculative. And there's no reason. I said, I don't have a smoking gun yet. 
More importantly, though, um, because we haven't been given access as a public, and I think I heard you saying this on uh, either your podcast or this might have been, you said on Tucker, maybe both, you said that you believe these fo- this footage should be released to the American people because it's paid for by the American people. I feel Absolutely. the same way. Um, this is America's information. I feel the same way about information about the FBI, by the way. It's like radical transparency and sunlight will disinfect all the, the ill and we can clean it up from there but only if we all know the facts and we can all agree on like, this is what happened. This is why. So um, in the absence of that, which we are in the absence of maybe uh top two, top three kind of theories on what you think happened in reverse order. What's the least likely thing that happened kind of moving towards what you think the most likely um, and you can be as vague or broad as you like uh, or specific if you have really concrete ideas. Cause you've seen more uh, than I have. I, I, th- I think the least likely thing is that there was some coordination between a disparate group of of entities, you know, a, a group of three percenter three percenters working with Antipa, working with the feds, working with, you know, whoever else uh, to create these little pockets and scenarios of crowd ma- manipulation and control. Um, and and as I'm sure you're well are aware those types of things happen and they are as old as warfare itself. You can move crowds with just a few violent people and you can, you can inflict, uh, well, you can start wars that last for years with just a handful of people and you can certainly move crowds on site. Uh, world war one is a pretty good example. It turns out. So yeah, I'm, I agree with you. What's That's, that? I said, world war one's a great example yeah, of that. Just absolutely. one guy and one guy and you got a whole world at war so okay so least likely is mass cooperation by a bunch of different desperate entities getting involved i think that's probably fair what about uh sort of mid-level mid mid mid-level uh would be and i am very open to this mid-level idea is that because of what i know about the lack of intel preparation and sharing of what was known by the fbi that day and of what was known by other groups that day and of what was deliberately, and, I, and when I say this, I say was deliberately not shared with the frontline uniformed officers of the United States Capitol Police that day. And I have this direct testimony from their mouth to my ears and of, of not only what was not shared with them, but what was then hidden after the fact. And because I know that I'm open to this mid-level idea that somebody up the chain worked with the Capitol Police specifically are <sighs> okay. You want me to just say it? I'll just yeah, say, yeah. you're like yeah, my well, FBI. You want me to just say it? <laughs> I I want you this is opinion, so you can say any opinion you have. And I'm a very staunch believer in the First Amendment. So if yeah, if you've got you to, I, I just want you to lose your G Man position and throw throw up your hands. I can't do it. This is not my thing. But yeah, but I but I, I think there's uh there's some wild conspiracies and then there's some like pretty grounded conspiracies that make a lot more sense. So, you know, you're in the middle believe, level right now. I believe that assistant chief Yogananda Pittman, who was head of an Capitol Police Intelligence, yep. who was sitting in the chair in the control room that day, had somebody above her directing her to allow what took place that day to go forward as it developed. As I said, the rope-a-dope operation. Mm-hmm. I believe that it was a complicit plan between her and somebody above her that in case this developed in that way and we're going to set it up this way so that we're not properly staffed, knowing that 
thousands of people were going to be moving towards the Capitol that day. And just in case it does get out of hand, let's call Fort Belvoir and have them there. Let's have U.S. Marshals embedded. Let's have some other agencies embedded in the crowd. Contingency not to plans. Do various things, not to be provocateurs themselves, but just in case it gets out of hand, we'll have people in the crowd to take care of business. Okay. And I think that that is what happened that day. So of that, of that uh, sort of analysis, the only really nefarious part of that is the poor staffing on intentionally because everything else would sort of fall in line if you didn't have enough people and you and let's say we didn't know that that was the case it just happened that the event happened organically nobody could have predicted this number of the people in the crowd we're just gonna have to you know eliminate the fact that we know that that wasn't the case because of all the permits but if that was the case and you had a massive crowd that you weren't prepared for the rope-a-dope is a really smart move tactically you're going to wear them out you're going to vet them as they come in you're going to move them in closer and closer and eventually you're going to give them what they want once you've protected the things you're responsible for protecting so that's actually right. not a bad you know in the field tactical level awareness but on a strategic level it's much more nefarious when you talk about setting those people up for that failure because your frontline officers are going to do the best they can your intermediate supervisors uh like Tarek, are going to have to do what they've got to do which is to keep protect officer safety and also the the assets that they're sworn to protect so that's not a bad move like they're doing the best things possible and really that comes down to a very very nasty potential nefarious action the, the real malfeasance is setting that failure up the inevitable failure up which i think is what a lot of people are landing on right now i think that um it's i think it's a it's a tight analysis of it but so many people are coming to it it's like where did a failure happen the failure happened in staffing and so then the question becomes, was it, um, was it malfeasance incompetence. or incompetence? Right. Correct. Right. And, that's, that's, and, that's either, it. and I mean, here's the thing, either way, that is, that is a absolutely destructive thing that should be enough to end a career and not yeah, get you, you put in charge of the Berkeley police department at a triple salary. Bingo. And that's I have, where, that's where I, you get the next level, right? I always default towards government incompetence first before I go before I put on my tinfoil hat. Yep. Because that's always the most likely scenario. It's still, here's the other thing though, even in your analysis though, that could still be the possibility because whether you set it up on purpose to be incompetent or you, or, you know, to, to have this sort of malfeasance or whether you were incompetent, the way it played out played really yeah. nicely into one set of hands and rewarding people for something that worked out in their favor, just out of dumb luck is yeah. still well within the playbook of, all government entities and especially corrupt ones. It's like, well, now you got to yeah. keep your mouth shut and you're never going to identify what happened because we have a narrative and we're going to keep it and you're going to get paid off to do it. And how's triple your salary sound at this cush gig in Berkeley uh, where you've never lived and you have no connection to. Except that it's just outside of Nancy Pelosi. Except district. that it's just outside the former speaker's space. It turns out. Yeah. So those kind of things are very, those are very suspect and they lead people in the absence of any overwhelming, um, evidence to the contrary, which the government may have and could provide to us as speculators at this point, they could debunk this in a second if there was a way to debunk it. But they also could confirm it really, really, really tangibly if they released everything as yeah. well. It's a possibility. Yeah. So They could debunk it by releasing uh, the, the morning briefings that morning, but I have testimony myself through interviews, mm -hmm. off the record, unnamed source, hard unit, his morning briefing that morning. 
for the first time in his entire career as a Capitol Police officer, they were not given given printed copies of their morning briefing. Hmm. And they were told by the captain who gave them the briefing, I know who the captain is, that the reason they were not going to be handed printed copies. Now, by the way, these are very, very detailed briefings. They're, they can be 12, 20, 25 pages long, um, especially on a big day like that. And and the printed copy would go to either a lieutenant or someone just below that, like like a high level sergeant. If they, I don't know how they are organized, but that person would be able to deploy forces because that's their job. They've got right. fifteen or twenty or whatever direct reports, and everybody's got a gig at a certain time. Okay, but you're not going to get printed copies today because we have two. Our our, our information today is too sensitive, so all the guys are like, okay, so they get their morning briefing. When the briefing was over, they all looked at each other again and went, what the hell is that all about? Right. Because where was the sensitive information? There was no sensitive information. It was just another day at the office. Mm -hmm. So then when they were required to file their after action reports, this particular offer, officer goes to his sergeant and says, I need a copy of the briefing to reference for my after action report. And he said, um, They've, they've been deleted. And he went, what? He said, yeah, captain, blah, 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 deleted the reports from the hard drive. Why would he do that? I don't know. It's just what he told me. It's just what he told me. Uh, this is, this is coming directly from and confirmed by other officers on that, in that unit or that group. Then <laughs> we finally see the actual printed 16-page CDU uh, briefing. It's now available. I have it. I have a copy of it. I sent the copy that I have over to this heart unit individual who got the breeding, the briefing, which was put up on the screen behind them. And he said, that's not the briefing we received. The briefing that they show to the public identifies all these secondary stages and all the stuff that was happening on the grounds that day mm. that comport with the eight permits that had been issued. That's the briefing that has been made public and it's dated January 3rd. The officers I've talked to said, that's not the briefing we received. And we believe that that was created after the fact. Yeah. So, I mean, there's really only two possibilities and you're laying out one of them, which is that it was done after the fact or that these guys are mistaken and this was the briefing and they, and they blew it. And you Except don't have any been communicated by multiple sources and you, you have cooperating sources that, uh, that say otherwise. Yeah. And how, how comfortable, and, how, and, so when and we, when we do intelligence, when we do intelligence, we always analyze the, uh, the capability of the source, right. And they'll mm -hmm. say, I assessed with low, medium or high confidence that this right. information is accurate. If you had to assign mm -hmm. a low, medium, or high confidence to the fact that your sources were giving you good information, where would you, what would you call it? Oh, I, I would call it very high because what I heard in courtroom under oath, other officers just as ignorant to the happenings that day as these guys were. If these guys were the, the CDU units were given detailed morning briefings on what was happening that day on the Capitol grounds. And then another officer who was just guarding the East door knew nothing 
then you'd go, okay, well, that doesn't make any sense. But what happened was, is the, the guys in the CDU unit, CDU unit are saying, there was nothing special given to us about that day. That's not the briefing that we got. And that, again, is in alignment with what we heard in testimony in trial, that they didn't know. And, and not just from the Capitol Police officers themselves, but so many others, including the event planner. The event planner himself, who was responsible for that, you know, setting up the stage. This guy, this guy has for years been doing very large events, uh, events from 5,000 people to a half, a quarter of a million people. Uh, he's been the event planner for those events. And he was, he was secured to, uh, hired to secure the permits from the Capitol Police uh, for this particular event, because that's his specialty. Yep. He was secured to bring in the staging, the sounds, coordinating the, the scheduling of the speakers, including Congress members, all of the above. So this guy, in his own testimony, he said when the truck started arriving with the staging and with the gear at 9 o'clock in the morning, he said that was, this is testimony in trial. He said the most unusual thing that he saw, he said by that time on a day like that with as many people as we were anticipating, he said, I would not only have seen five, six, seven times the number of officers on site. He said, I would have seen at least two or three different tactical units in the area as well. And he said there was none and maybe a half a dozen officers milling around in the area. He said that was the first most stark difference at the start of his day as an event planner that he had experienced on January 6th, again, completely making the testimonies of these officers highly, you know, uh, believable. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Um, I, so I don't know if you, <laughs> I don't, I haven't told this to a whole bunch of people, but I was out doing training with a bunch of tactical units, um, from different Maryland police units, including some of the guys from the Maryland state police, uh, mm. emergency services unit. I think it's ESU or something to that effect, emergency services division. And they all got paged out, you know, in the afternoon when right. this went sideways. They were not on standby. We were doing we were doing training. We were out on a shooting range. We were, you know, doing yeah. flat range training. And these guys were looking around going, what in the world just happened in the Capitol? And then we turned on, you know, some news feeds and saw some of, the, of what had happened. And it's like, okay, there's a guy with a Viking helmet and he's sitting in the speaker's <laughs> chair. Something went sideways. And so they're like, right. we got to do mutual aid. So we have to respond to this. But they yeah. weren't on standby. And and generally speaking, as we talked about earlier, I think you would expect that some of these units would be ready because they do have agreements with places like D.C., especially in large uh, crowd control environments. They have authorities to come in and help out or they're on backup. So they'll be sitting yeah. on a bag somewhere. They hang out with their gear and, and get ready to go. And they're all tacked up and jocked up and they sit around and mostly they just get stood back down and they go back to their life. Mm -hmm. But they had totally different plans, including yeah. the commander of that unit, by the way. That was one of the guys I was shooting with. So the commander of the Maryland State uh, Police um, Tactical Unit <laughs> was just hanging out with me. We were having a good old time. We were talking about guns. You know, we we're talking about competitive shooting and all the things you would do. And then we look around halfway into the afternoon and it's like, oh, and then Tom had to leave. And that was the last time I got to see him because, you know, we had a very short friendship because January 6 events, uh, which right. which put him into action. Right. I, I do agree with you that that makes it much more credible. I think I appreciate you kind of like fleshing it out. I think people need to hear the the reasons why certain things are credible. Sometimes it needs to be spoon fed. And especially in something so contentious as this, there are, you know, we have to draw the lines between all the data points. And I think yeah. that's there. Um, one of the things that has kind of brought you into a, uh, you know, more of a national spotlight or had you go and sit on uh, on a uh, Fox program was a concern that you think that the FBI may be turning around and going after people like you and independent journalists who are disrupting the narrative and, people like Tucker Carlson as well, who are releasing 
things that are contrary to what we've been hearing about for two years, even though I think a lot of folks understand that the narrative was always was very manufactured. Like there was there was contrary evidence right away. And what the reason was was not really apparent. Like, did they open did the cops open the doors? Did the cops just let the doors be opened? Were the doors breached, thrown open, and the cops were told to stand out? Like there, you know, there were a lot of different possibilities. And you've kind of alighted on one of them. But um why do you think there's a new focus on like why would the FBI focus on you now with the fact that some of this stuff is is big and national and there's nothing they can do to control it, I don't think. Do you think there's something they could do? Like by arresting you, would they would they change that game? Well, first of all, I was told after my FBI interview, at the conclusion of that interview, that just and this is them speaking, even the the, the rough guy, you know, every, everybody's we're smiling and we we we've, we've ended it on some joviality and we've had some laughs and and so we're all kind of standing around the table at this point and and you know poking fun at one another for different things that sort of thing. Sure. And it's, it's just 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 so you know. Uh, Mr. Baker, that, um, you know, it's not in our hands at all. We're going to, you know, submit the report, the video, the audio transcripts will be made um, by the Department of Justice. If they decide to move against you, here's what's going to happen. Uh, there's going to, um, because of your cooperation, you're, you're, you're not going to be arrested. There's not going to be any perp walk. You, you'll, you'll, your attorney will get a call. We'll set up a, a mutually agreeable time. They knew about my career as a musician and that I have, you know, I have shows and because I still do, I still play. Sure. And in fact, I've got a show tomorrow. And, and so they, they, they said, we'll work with you around your schedule and you'll come in, submit yourself to the, to the marshals and then they'll process you and you'll be released on your own recognizance, that sort of thing. And they said, so that's, that's how it's going to go. And they said, and by the way, um, if they, if there are any charges filed, they'll, they'll be misdemeanor charges that, that's it. You know, that's then. So that's how we left the day. Um, another month passes and you get the, you get the, you see the, you see the, the caller ID on your phone that you don't ever want to see. And it's my attorney. And I'm like, oh, crap. And sure enough, he says, Hey, Steve, I've got some bad news for you. He said, I just got an email from the uh, assistant U S attorney out of the Philadelphia office. Uh, her name is Anita Eve, and they are going to go ahead and file charges against you. And he said, that's the bad news. He said, but the worst news is <laughs> there was no good news. He said, the worst news is, is that they're charging you with interstate racketeering. Oh, good. And I went, what? And he said, yeah, he said, when I saw it. And I, I went straight and looked up the code and sure enough, and I'm like, send that to me, send it to me. And he, he emailed it over to me mm -hmm. and it's a felony, 20 years, you know, in prison. And I said, his name is Matt. And I said, Matt, what, what, what is this? So there was not only the racketeering charge, but also they were hitting me with property damage which I did none of whatsoever. So you'll, you'll like this going back to the interview. Now at one point I'm describing to them how that in each section of the Capitol, when I would, how I would get up and away, Oh, you got up. How, how'd you do that? So what, like, you know, in one of the rooms, whatever it was, I said, I, you know, I, I got, I stood up on a bench so I could get above the crowd and film what they were doing. Sure. And agent Noyes, the guy goes, he goes, you, you stood on a bench. 
I said, yeah. He reached out. He starts writing on his pad. And I kind of like, well, that was an unusual response to me standing on a bench. Pretty innocuous uh, statement. Yeah. Guess what? Under the criminal code, standing on a bench in federal property of any kind, any place, anywhere is a federal crime. It's pro- it is actually in the property damage section of the code. So they were going to charge me with property damage and interstate racketeering. And the only thing that we could surmise or the only thing that we could come up with is that also in the FBI interview, they were really inquisitive about how much money I had made off of my videos and uh, from the licensing because I had an agent. And I licensed that through that agency and, and it, my videos ended up in the HBO documentary, the New York times documentary and news sure. services all over the world used my, some of my video clips. And so, uh, I mean, it, to be honest with you, the, 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 the standard rate on these kinds of things is very, very low. You'd be surprised how low it is. I probably had not pocketed more than $1,500 total in the eight months since the event at that eight, 10 months, uh, uh, before my interview. And so I, I told them that and they wrote that down, but they were still very inquisitive. They really wanted to know, uh, they started asking me questions about my finances. And, and this was the only, this was the only time in the two hour interview that I looked over at my attorney. I go, I don't have to answer that. Do I? And he goes, no. I said, okay. So let's stop the money questions has nothing to do with January 6th. And they were okay. Okay. And, uh, and so essentially the interstate racketeering charge, the best we can figure out was the fact that they were going to make the claim that I knew that there was an illegal event that was going to take place that day. And I traveled across state lines specifically for the purpose of profiting from an illegal event. That's a hell of a claim. A hell of a claim. Yeah. Well, so, so he receives this notice of the impending charges against me. And this is an exact quote from the email from assistant U S attorney, Anita Eve. She said, your client will be charged within the week. That was November 17th, 2021 week before, um, Thanksgiving. And being the kind of guy I am, I wasn't going to take that sitting down. I sat down and drafted out a press release ran it by my attorney and another uh, writer friend of mine. We cleaned it up. We sent it out to about 200 news services the next on Monday morning at nine o'clock in the morning at one fifteen on Monday afternoon. My attorney gets another email from assistant U S attorney Anita Eve with a copy of the press release. Mm-hmm. Guess who's monitoring my communications. Yeah, sure. She has it. She sends my attorney a copy of the press release, says, we're not happy about this. Well, I'm very lucky in that I have my Raleigh attorney is a flaming libertarian himself. And he responded exactly in the manner that I would hope and expect from him. He says, he said, you're not expecting that my client. And first of all, he says, you've seen who he is because I'm pretty aggressive. And she goes, you know, he's not going to shut up. And he says, are you expecting that my 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 client is going to forego his First Amendment rights to tell the world about his impending persecution from the Department of Justice? And she wrote back and said, oh, no, no, that's not what I'm implying at all. I'm just letting you know that the judge, whoever handles his case, may not look at 
at this very favorably to which I responded to my attorney said, as if she cares how the judge is going to respond to my actions, my journalistic activities and responding to this threat. And, uh, uh, very, very fortunate in that because of that press release, wheels started turning very quickly because what we were going on and we were going on the offense is essentially what we were doing against the threat. Yes. And, and it was a media offensive against the threat, but other things happened in the process. I, by Tuesday morning of Thanksgiving week, uh, I was starting to get the calls from various agencies wanting, you know, uh, pr smaller, smaller entities in the press that were wanting to talk to me, newspapers, podcasters, radio shows, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but additionally, I got a call from uh, you. I think, you know, Mike Waller, right? I do know Mike Waller. Yes. So Mike and I, we had cross pollinated because our original January six stories, I think his came out on January 12th. Mine came out on January 13th and we became mutual admirers, admirers of one another because we saw the same thing. He's pretty sharp. Yep. Yeah. We saw exactly the same thing in that crowd and our stories were so closely uh, almost identical that we became friends as a result of that i sent him a copy of the press release he had me on the phone that night with senator ron johnson from wisconsin now, senator johnson did not have to talk to me i don't live in his state i'm not one of his constituents i can never vote for him and that guy told mike waller to give me his personal cell phone number at 9 15 on tuesday night thanksgiving week i called the I said, he answers the phone. I said, is this, hello, this is, uh, is this Senator Johnson? He goes, it's Ron. And I said, well, this is Steve Baker. I was giving your number to call you. And I said, well, and I, and I, I started uh, explaining what was going on and, and I kept calling him Senator Johnson. He goes, it's Ron. I said, okay, I'll, I'll give in Senator Ron. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and he was, he said, all right. He said, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to have my investigators call you because he was on the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, minority team, obviously in the Senate, yeah. but he was, he was the minority leader on, on the house, uh, investigative committee for January 6th. I'm sorry, the Senate investigative committee. Right. And he said, I'll have my, uh, my investigators get in touch with you shortly and you can tell us your story. And that happened. And so I suddenly had a Senator in my corner Mike Waller in my corner. We had the press offensive going on. And then on Wednesday morning, I got a call from uh, who would eventually become my DC attorney. And uh, he is uh, 22 years, former federal prosecutor and happened to work in the same office with AUSA Anita E for 12 years. Oh, wow. So, is this someone whose name is public or are we keeping him out of this? Uh, yeah, it's Brad Geyer. He okay. uh, was also um, Ken Harrelson's attorney in the Oath Keepers trial, okay. uh, the first Oath Keepers trial. He's represented some other January 6th uh, uh, clients as well. And do you, anyway, I'm going to so, pause you for one second. Do you have an yeah. instinct of what kind of bravery it takes for an attorney to jump into this fray? Because I, I have a little bit of a, a, I was asking for some help when I was going through my whistleblower stuff, and they were telling me they were basically having to say no over and over again to J six defendants. Cause they were all mostly impoverished, um, yep. mostly had made bad decisions. And then partners were voting against, even in conservative law firms, they didn't want to yes. touch this nuclear reactive, toxic football that was January six. And I imagine you probably experienced some of that as well. Well, you and I know 
that we're running up against this in our own efforts to bring to light the abomination that is the Department of Justice right now. And even though we have allegedly friendly forces on our side in the House of Representatives, whether it's the so-called Weaponization Committee, whether it's the House Oversight Committee or the House Administration, those three main committees which should be on our team and should be helping us with our investigations and our efforts to bring these abuses to light, you and I both know that they also are reacting to the toxicity that is January 6th, and we're not getting the support we need. You're attributing um, the possible sort of negative fallout of picking a side and, and and maybe even just saying that the truth is the side is too much for these committees. Is that more or less what you're saying? I'm saying that they don't want to touch it. Uh, they don't want to get within, you know, thousand feet of it. I, I have come I've come to the conclusion that it's again, you either you either when you're when you're talking about politics, it's not necessarily an issue of malfeasance versus um, incompetence, but either they are themselves part of the system that they're seeking to maintain mm -hmm. that would be the conspiratorial side yep or because it's politics polling is more uh important than principle and they have internal polling from their voters and their constituencies that were tired of this january 6 crap and they just want it to go away and just so let all these cases run their course, let the DA, DOJ run roughshod over this next thousand uh, people to be arrested, let it happen. And one day it'll be over with. And the quieter we are about it, the less likely we are to do damage to ourselves in the next election cycle. Uh, that's what I think is happening right now. But well, the problem, Kyle, is that they don't understand is that January 6th, January 6th is not about what happened on January 6th. It's just not. The problem is, is that the Department of Justice is, in fact, the heart, the soul, the core of the Death Star that is attacking our civil liberties, civil civil liberties, the Constitution, and uh, the 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 basic rights of Americans. And January sixth is just right now the experimental playground where they're discovering they get to run roughshod with no rules. And they press it in every single trial, in every single case, with every single defendant. They are making and setting precedent now that we can do whatever we want to, Bill of Rights be damned. And they're getting by with it. It's interesting that you call it the Death Star. Um, that's that's something that we refer to main justice as when you work inside uh, the FBI, DOJ, sometimes I call the Hoover building the same thing. Uh, they asked me to go do an interview there. And I said, I have no interest in, you know, going to the Death Star. That doesn't sound like a thing I want to do. Uh, they didn't like it when I said that, but I don't really care. And I recorded it anyway. Um, I've called January 6th, the American Rorschach test. <laughs> what do you think about that as, a, as an image? Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and truth at Kyle Serafin. 